So our, ser- our series, our new series in Revelation is entitled Ready for the Return of the King. It's both a statement and a question. Are you ready for the return of the King? But also let's be ready for the return of the King. The church can be ready for the return of the King if we read his word and understand it and put it into practice in our lives. May he help us to do so. Today's message is entitled, Jesus the Living One. Once again, we continue to unpack his majesty, his significance, through the vision of our brother John, the Apostle. Corporations like to cast a vision. Corporations like to make mission statements. Have you noticed? Branding is all important to our corporations. But friends, the reality is the church has the greatest vision of all. The church has a vision of a gracious and loving, sovereign saviour. And it's inspired great works of art through the ages. We've got some pictures with us this morning. I want us to see the first of the tapestries. We've got three pictures. There's tapestry one. There we go, tapestry one. Last summer I had the privilege of travelling with Harry and Rebecca to uh, the chateau, the castle at Angers in uh, France. Uh, in the Loire Valley region, the wider Loire Valley region. And there is a medieval tapestry which displays the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John in all its glory. And this is one of the pictures from that tapestry. You can see in the top section um, the seven churches depicted. The seven churches, which we'll hear referenced in Scripture this morning. And then, if we can see the second of the tapestry pictures, we have there in the top left uh, a picture of Christ seated in his glory with a double-edged sword in his mouth and the seven lampstands beside him. Again, something directly from chapter 1 of Revelation that we'll be reading today. So I'm going to ask for this picture to remain behind us to give you some idea the significance of this revelation to individuals, to the church throughout the ages, and to rulers. This was commissioned by one of the rulers of France back in the medieval period. Great significance, great inspiration. You'll remember if you were here last week or online uh, that I mentioned symbolism. Symbolism. We're going to be exploring symbolism as we go throughout the text of Revelation, where it's appropriate. We'll unpack it a little bit. And so I want to mention again this morning symbolism. And the general principle as we go through the book of Revelation is that we're to uh, interpret these visions and these symbols, we're to interpret it symbolically, unless we're forced to interpret it literally. We don't come at it first literally trying to ask, okay, who is the Antichrist? Or or who are these 
churches or who are these people? Sometimes we're given answers. We're told who the seven churches are, for example. We're told what the lampstands represent. But in other places, they are truths which are truths throughout the church age, true throughout our experience. And so we'll unpack them gradually and appropriately as we go through the text. The Apostle John is describing, he's using this symbolism because he's describing the unspeakable reality of a divine vision and the majesty of Almighty God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Remember, this revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it starts off saying, verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we're first and foremost learning is all about Jesus Christ, how Jesus saves his church, how Jesus makes his church ready, how Jesus supports and encourages his church through these dark times of tribulation. John is describing ultimate reality and he's using human words to do so. Could you do that? Could you use words, your words, to describe divine revelation, divine reality? The fact that John is able to do so is itself miraculous and proof of divine inspiration. John is able to use human words, okay, originally in the Greek language, a rich language, to communicate the majesty and the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of God. And so he uses symbols. John has explained some of those symbols. Look at chapter 1 and verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Lord God tells John what the significance of some of this vision is. Precisely. The fact that Christ is holding the seven angels means that they are sent from him. They are his messengers. These could be heavenly angels or they could be human messengers. If they carry with them the true message of Jesus, then they are his angels, his messengers. Friends, if you carry the true message about Jesus, then you are an angel. You are a messenger of God Almighty. The figure seven, which is which we see here mentioned uh, more than once, the figure seven represents completeness. The seven churches represent all churches, as well as these particular seven which are named. The loud voice of Christ represents a clear and universal message to all churches. 
The revelation of Jesus that John is giving here is something to encourage and help the whole church throughout this church age. From those in the immediate context of John's writing, those who, who, those first churches who would have received and understood John's letter in Greek, to all the churches using faithful translations through the ages, including us here today. There are many other symbols used in Revelation, which we'll explain as we journey through together. I want to encourage you always, I want to encourage you always to do this, but to take God's word and read ahead of the next week's sermon. Just You don't have to read the whole of Revelation. It would be great if you did. Regularly, every week, read the whole of Revelation, if you have time. But just read the next portion, read the next half chapter or the next chapter so you've got something of an understanding before you come to the church, before you come to the chapel and gather. It will help you, especially the revelation. Let's read, shall we, together from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Let's read of Jesus, the living one. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Praise God for his revelation to us.
just going to um, ask for the other picture, uh, which is of a coin. We've seen the tapestries. We'll come back to the tapestry in a moment, but I just want to point out this coin here. It's a Roman coin of uh, Emperor Domitian. Emperor Domitian was the first emperor to launch an empire-wide persecution of the church in the late first century. And this is a coin that he issued. And uh, on the reverse, well, on, the, on the face you'll see Emperor Domitian's face. On the reverse you'll see an image of a child sitting on top of the world with seven stars. Reaching out for seven stars. This is the context in which John was writing. In Roman times, the emperor was claimed to be divine, and so all offspring of the emperor was declared to be divine. Emperor Domitian lost one of his sons after childbirth, and um, he was so heartbroken that he had this coin minted for his son, and the son as a divine offspring sits on top of the world and has the seven stars. Of course, those of you who know your history will know Rome was founded on seven hills. And so the, the number seven, very significant to the Romans, and he there, having passed on, has seven stars in his hands. Friends, the Romans and every other empire, every other worldly empire makes false claims makes claims that rulers are divine. Just like the rulers of North Korea claim to be divine. But there is only one divinity. Our brother John knew that. And so he speaks into this context of a vision of the Son of Man, the divine Son of Man revealed in Scripture, who has those stars in his hand, truly. Not some wishful thinking, some earthly empire, but the truth and reality of God's own self-revelation. Friends, as we unpack scripture today, I've got three points, three S's for us. Firstly, Jesus is sovereign. Secondly, Jesus saves. And thirdly, Jesus sends. Jesus is sovereign, Jesus saves, and Jesus sends as we consider the living one this morning if we could have the picture of the tapestry back up uh, the one with uh, number two please Jesus is sovereign for those familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and let's remember the Bible the disciples of Jesus grew up with was the Old Testament scriptures the descriptions of Jesus here in Revelation chapter 1 are absolutely unmistakable. And whilst they're not a verbatim copying of any one text, John's not just simply citing an Old Testament text. He's gathering together various visions, various pictures of God Almighty in his glory and various prophecies of the coming Messiah and collecting it together for us in Revelation some of you might be thinking of Daniel 7. Some of you might be thinking of the prophet Isaiah. 
Some of you might be thinking of the prophet Zechariah. There are so many prophecies, there are so many visions given to the prophets of old where they look and see the Lord Jesus Christ. They look and see the majesty from on high. According to John and his imagery, Jesus wields supreme power and authority. And Jesus is identified as the divine judge. Messianic prophecies found in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4, chapter 49 and verse 2, both also speak of Jesus, the coming one, as a divine judge. The picture painted in Revelation chapter 1 is of the all-powerful God who has taken the form of a man. Yet not just any man, a man who has now been glorified and revealed in his unique divine being. Notice how Jesus uses essentially the same phrase the Lord God uses to describe himself. The first and the last. Last week, we in verse 8, we heard him declare himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is now using the same language to refer to himself. As the first and the last in verse 17. God uses this language himself in Isaiah 41 verse 4. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Isaiah 48 verse 12. And so we can be under no mistake. If you're ever talking with Muslims about whether Jesus ever claimed to be divine. Then Point them to the New Testament. Point them to Revelation. Point them to the Gospels. Because this confirms for us the fully divine identity of Jesus and his complete sovereignty over human history. Friends, Jesus wields supreme power and authority. And yet the marvellous thing is that he is a servant priest. How do we know this from our text this morning, Pastor Ben? Well, who were those who tended the lampstands in the tabernacle? It was the priests, those who offered up the sacrifices of atonement and redemption for the people of God. As the writer to the Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear friend, I don't know about you, 
but I have a great many weaknesses. How do you deal with yours? Do you come to Jesus? I hope so, because he alone can save. We've seen how Jesus is sovereign, clearly demonstrated in the text this morning, and now let's see how Jesus saves. The Apostle John gives the only appropriate human response here in these verses to the divine revelation. What does he do? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, says the Apostle John. Seems like I'm not the only one with a great many weaknesses. I'm not the only one with a great many failings, dear friends. Even the Apostle John knew his weaknesses, his failings. And so he fell at the feet of the Lord as though dead. The reality is, is that we truly ought to be dead because of our sin. How is it that John is not dead? Well, what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. Fear not, says Jesus. The tender voice of Christ that we hear speaking through the gospel accounts. Fear not, weary friend. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Why did he die? Why he died as we saw last week. Verse 5. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. He died in order to set us free from our sins, in order to atone for our wrongdoing. Jesus saves. The gospel, the good news, is the basis of our not fearing. Remember what we heard from Hebrews just now. Hebrews chapter 4, that was, in case you wanted to take notes. Though we have many weaknesses... The sacrifice offered by Christ is much greater. It's much, much greater than every one of your failings, friend. And his heart towards his people is much, much more merciful and gracious than we can ever imagine. Oh, precious child, made in the image of God to reflect his glory. How we have stumbled and fallen. But he will gently put his right hand on our shoulder and tell us, fear not. Fear not. His perfection can gently kiss your imperfection as you stand in the midst of the tribulation along with your brother and partner John, the beloved disciple. Does that make us beloved too? 
Did you know you're beloved by God? Have you felt his hand on your shoulder? Have you tasted his perfection exchanged for your imperfection? Friend, when you taste that, when you taste that beautiful nectar, you won't want to turn back. You won't want to turn back to roll in the mud again. We better believe that we're beloved, friends. Beloved of Christ, the sovereign Lord of all, the almighty God, who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the sovereign Lord who vanquished the armies of Assyria outside the gates of Jerusalem. He stands against the tide of godless rebellion today in our time too. Prideful, sinful immorality that threatens to wash away countless millions of souls. And yet he is gracious to those who turn in repentance from their sin to put their trust in this Saviour. John and his fellow apostles, the more than 500 witnesses that Paul records in 1 Corinthians, they bear the testimony of those who witnessed the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. That's what John is doing now. He's bearing witness to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. The execution of the perfectly sinless, unblemished Lamb of God for the sins of all who would put their trust in him, who would hand over their lives to him since they belong to him to begin with. And their testimony of the resurrection which is the guarantee of eternal life for these same believers. Friends, he is the living one. He died and is alive again. And he secures and provides life for all his people and life for the renewal of the world itself, which Revelation declares will be made new. All things made new. As I asked earlier in the service, have you added your life to Christ's? Remember, Christianity is not about adding Jesus to our story, but about yielding our lives to him. Let's pray the Lord increasingly helps us to do that. And if he's enabled you to yield your life to him, if he's communicated his great saving love to you, then he's not just going to leave you there. He's going to send you, dear friend, to minister that same grace to others. Third point, Jesus sends. Jesus is in the business of using mere humans, people like John, the young man who ran away naked from Jesus' arrest. This man, John, by now an old man, languishes in the Roman penal colony on Patmos. 
I hope you realise that. As he says there, I'm writing from Patmos. What the significance of that is. This is no all-inclusive break on a nice Greek paradise island. Friends, Patmos was the destination that many feared. It's the destination that all those uh, in that eastern Mediterranean area, those who were considered dangerous to good order, that's where they were sent in exile to languish, to, to, to not cause trouble and bother to anyone on the mainland. That's where John is writing from, this old man who God has preserved for this time and this place to experience in the spirit this vision of the Saviour. You see, the Roman Empire viewed the church as undesirable, viewed those whose allegiance was to Christ alone as dangerous to good order. Isn't that increasingly the opinion of our society too? Christians, those who take God's word, his holiness and his commands seriously, we're increasingly sidelined for getting in the way of progress. We're a thorn in the side of universal, politically correct, anything-goes culture. Which is increasingly descending into madness. And so the temperature of the criticism and the intolerance of the word of God increases in our day. We shouldn't be surprised, friends. What we should be doing is handing a lifeline to those who need it. What we should be doing is grabbing a, a rubber ring. You know, if you go to Northlands Park and you walk around the lake and the, the vandals haven't been at the, at the life, life rings, there are some life rings dotted around the side of the lake. You can help someone if they get into trouble in the water. We should be like those, helping people stuck in this dangerous, confused world that we live in now. That's what John is doing. He's confined to Patmos. He's been sidelined by the Roman Empire. He's been exiled to Patmos. What does he do? Does he start behaving himself like a good boy? Does he get in line with the doctrine of the day? No. He writes to the church. He's obedient to Christ. Firstly, by continuing to worship the Lord. When was this vision given? Well, it was given on the Lord's Day, when it says John was in the Spirit. And he doesn't shut his mouth, but instead directly challenges Rome and her falsely exalted emperor. Remember, as I said, the son of the emperor Domitian doesn't hold the seven stars. He isn't divine, he can't save. But Jesus, the Son of God, the living one, he is the one who holds them. And these are not empty symbols. These are instead representative of the power of the message that the messengers carry. The message of the truth about God. The truth about us. And how we, like John, can be saved 
and not burned up by the power of Almighty God. So what does John tell the church? Sorry, what does Jesus tell John to do? He says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. That's what Jesus says. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. John has already gone himself. John was already sent as one of the apostles. He spent decades traveling, establishing churches, strengthening them, preaching the good news of the gospel. Now he's isolated in exile on the island. What does he do? He doesn't give up. He experiences more of Jesus and he writes it down to encourage his brothers and sisters in the church. We should be getting excited, friends. And so John, as we read in Scripture, he will write of things that have been, things that are, and things that will be, as he's empowered by the Spirit to write the oracles and truth of God. Friends, timeless truth from the first century preserved by the by the very providence of Almighty God, in order that we here and now in the 21st century might be encouraged in the ongoing tribulation to be those who patiently endure with John. Verse 9. And we can do so securely and emboldened if we are in Jesus. Because, friends, he is the one watching over us. He is the one tending our lampstands. His voice cannot be silenced. It's a loud voice, far louder than mine, like the roar of many waters. And his feet are like burnished bronze. I don't know if you've ever been up to Trafalgar Square to those statues with the burnished, made of burnished bronze. They look pretty immovable, right? You tried kicking one of those, break every toe, every bone in your foot. Well, Jesus is like that, but far more immovable, far more irresistible, and shining with the glory of the Lord of ages. Verse 16, his face shines like the sun in full strength. That's the only thing in all creation that we can point to that even closely resembles the glory of Christ. Friend, what is the worst that the world can do to us? Well, like many throughout history, we could be martyred. We could be called upon to pay the ultimate price. As John says, verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was languishing on Patmos, because of his profession, because of his faith. We could be called to pay the ultimate price because of that same faith. But notice our Jesus is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, verse 18. And death and Hades will themselves one day be thrown into the lake of fire to be no more. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. Jesus holds the keys and one day those things will be things of the past. So what's the worst the world can do to us? 
send us to be with Jesus earlier. Amen? Beloved friend, if we know Jesus, then we will be preserved for all eternity in the blessed presence of this same merciful, kind, gentle Saviour and King of the universe. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus saves. And Jesus sends. As Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City says, God never calls us in to love and change us without then sending us out to reach and serve others. He never, he never just simply gives us the love and gives us all the good things. He then wants to use us. He wants to use a transformed person, transformed man and transformed woman to be his angels, to be his messengers and emissaries. Friends, if God could still use John, imprisoned and forgotten about on a penal colony on the island of Patmos, if God could still use him to serve the church, then how much can he use us? How much can he use you? Shall we pray?